0: You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org.
1: For leading us so well. This has been an unusual week. Several great men of God have been called home. Uh, Dr. Reeder, um, whom uh, most of you knew of, I never had the privilege or the opportunity to meet him, I wish I had. And um, then on Friday, um, Tim Tim Keller went to uh, be with the Lord as well. I have read his books and listened to him preach and have been all the better for it. Unusual week in that sense. And yet today we come to celebrate the Lord, to worship Jesus Christ, and to um, celebrate our graduates. And that's really who I want to talk to Uh, today if you're a graduate, and uh, not just to the graduates, though it will apply specifically to them, but for all of us, it's something we need to hear. So I hope you've got a copy of God's Word. I hope you have um, got something you can take some notes on. I'm going to do more lecture, honestly, than I will do preaching, but I will preach a little and lecture a little. Been doing that all this week up at the National Preaching Conference I've just had this on my mind for several weeks to do what I'm about to do. Uh, There are so many reports, so many papers, so many uh, pieces of research over the last 20 years that have come out to tell us that when our high school students go off to college, they leave the faith. I've been reading that for about 20 years, that they just simply leave the faith, that uh, they are no longer interested in anything to do with. God or the spiritual or anything like that. <clears throat> and as I've read that, and yet as I have taught in the last couple of years, e- even this past week when I, I was uh, up at the National Preaching Conference, you know, you know, they'll ask you, will you come and preach? And I said, sure, I'll come and preach. Then they start dumping all the other stuff on you. Uh, they'll, they'll call back and say, well, uh, you're, can't, w- what's going to be the topic of your breakout session? Well, I didn't know I was doing a breakout session oh yeah, we, you're, you're coming, so we've got you lined up to do a breakout session. And so I said, <clears throat> I thought to myself, you know, I really don't want to do anything. I've got to preach that night. So I thought to myself, you know, I'll, I'll do something that is guaranteed nobody will come to. I said, okay, here, do, do, do this. Tell them I'm going to do the history of preaching. And nobody will come to it. I had a room full. And I was stunned at the young Men, college age, young men that were in uh, that class. I I have learned to reject this concept that our young people are done with God or spirituality. They're done with the church. Now, this is going to be hard for us to hear, but it's true. They're done with the church. They're not done, they are spiritually hungry. They're spiritually starved. They don't want somebody who will dance around the scripture. They want to delve into it. They want to go deep. Uh, But they are done with church, and they're done with church for several reasons. One of the reasons happens to be uh, that they say, this is not me, but they say that they see no correlation between what they hear and see in church on Sunday and what is lived out in their homes through the course of the week. Now, there's nobody to blame for that but us as parents. But that's what they say. I'm just quoting research on that. And there's tons of it out there on it. The second reason happens to be they're done with church because of the weak, anemic, compromising preaching uh, that is done in most pulpits today. Uh, They're through with church because. They watch the church compromise with the culture that whichever direction the culture moves in, the church is in behind it thinking that if we can be enough like the culture, then the culture will come into the church. And the culture looks at us and they're baffled as well as our teenagers are. The third reason happens to be there is this issue in higher academics Uh, that basically says you cannot trust the Word of God, uh, that uh, the Word of God, we don't know that the Bibles that we have, you can't believe this literally, you can't take this literally, you can't believe that this is the inerrant Word of God, because all you have are all of these copies with all of these variants, and we don't know if this is anything like the original. The one professor above everybody else in higher academics that has touted this happens to be a professor by the name of Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman grew up in the Midwest in a conservative home, felt God was leading him toward ministry, went to Moody Bible Institute, uh, was there for a couple of years, went on over to Wheaton, which Wheaton is just right there at Moody, and finished Wheaton, felt called to the ministry, so he went to divinity school at Princeton, And uh, there at Divinity School to get his Masters of Divinity, he built a relationship with really the greatest Greek scholar um, alive at the time who happened to be uh, Bruce Metzger. And uh, in building that relationship, he continued with his PhD, got his PhD under Metzger, went off into the area of New Testament textual criticism. uh, That is the studying of the text, the manuscripts. And uh, out of that, Uh, gave up his faith, drifted from the word of God, and once you start drifting from the word of God, you will eventually put Jesus Christ on the shelf. You will eventually put God away from you, which is exactly what he did. He is and happens to be uh, agnostic at best, atheist in the least, and is the head of the New Testament religion department at the University of North Carolina. Wow is right. Now to the 10th chapter, that's an introduction to the 10th chapter of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is gonna deal with two things that I wanna share with our graduates in particular, but with all of us, because we all need to hear and learn this. And I really do hope you've got something you can write with, because I'm going to give you some things today that I think will be a tremendous encouragement and help to you. He begins this in this way. You come to Jeremiah chapter 10. When you begin in chapter 7, you, you begin with what is called the Great Temple Gate Sermon. God calls uh, Jeremiah to go down to the temple to stand in the gate and to preach to the people who are coming to church. The reason that he had to stand at the gate is because they would not let him in the temple, much the way they would not let Wesley in the church in England, much the same way they would not let uh, uh, Whitfield in the church in England, much the same way they would not let the Anabaptists in any church anywhere because they could not handle the word of God. Well, he goes down and he begins to preach. So you come through 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12. And you have got these messages, these sermons that Jeremiah now preaches. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord. And uh, he's going to give them a word about the nations and idolatry. And I'm going to hold that into abeyance for just a moment. But I want you to look at the heart of this beginning in verse 10. Verse 10. He comes and he says, but the Lord is the true God. So he's going to begin here and he's going to talk about how uh, the word of God and God's power can be trusted. The word of God and God's power can be trusted. You can trust God in your life. Uh, The Hebrews now had turned to all of these idols for a reason. If you look there in the next verse where it says, in verse two, don't learn the way of the nations, that's exactly what they did. Israel looked at all the nations around them and they noticed at how sophisticated those um, societies were Uh, how cultured the culture was, how advanced the culture seemed to be, they looked at Babylon. And by the way, uh, by the end of Jeremiah, Babylon is going to attack Judah and will attack it three times. And in the third um, attack on Judah, will just essentially destroy everything that's there. So they're going to come in three waves. Uh, they, they're not quite there yet, but here's why they're going to come. God's going to pour judgment out on them because they've looked at Babylon and they've said, "Well, look, we're looking at your society. Y'all are so, you're so advanced educationally. You're so advanced in uh, in, in that day's technology. You're so advanced militarily." And uh, they watched and they looked at that and they saw it and they thought, "Well, the gods of Babylon." must be doing this for the Babylonians. Can they do this for us? You had one of the seven wonders in Babylon. It was called uh, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar II had built this gigantic pyramid and you could go up in the inside the pyramid and it would lead out all these floors, just on up and up and up to all of these gardens planted with every kind of uh, plant and tree and flower, all of these things that you would not see in the desert. And hydraulically, they had worked the system out to take it, uh, the water out of the Euphrates, out of the Tigris, and to pump it up into this pyramid where it would rain down on all of these plants that were there. And people from all over the then known world would go uh, to Babylon to look at the hanging gardens of Babylon. Uh, The walls of Babylon were impressive enough. I've happened to go and look at some section of the wall of Babylon that they have in Paris at the Louvre. Uh, They would take these massive blocks and they would bake them in these kilns and uh, they would bake what looked like sea foam frosting on these massive blocks that they had carved all of these beautiful reliefs in. And they built the wall of Babylon out of that so that when you walked up, the walls were so big that they would take your breath away. The walls were so thick you could drive two chariots and two teams of horses uh, next to each other all the way around the city of Babylon on top of the wall. But the walls were so beautiful, they were so magnificent, uh, that just to look at them would defy description. So they looked at Babylon and they said, well, maybe your gods are doing this. And so what they did was they began to have this idea, we can possibly worship their gods as well as our God, Jehovah. It's not that they did away with Jehovah. What they did was simply this. They added to their worship the worship of these pagan gods. Now I'm going to show you two things today that I want you to see. And I'm gonna point them out very clearly, and I'm gonna keep mentioning these. I want you to see, first of all, that you can trust the Word of God for your life. You can trust it. He comes and he says this in verse 10 But the men, but the Lord is the true God. The Lord is the true God. That word true right there means right. It means faithful, it means established, it means reliable, it means stable, it means the God who speaks truth, the God who is truth in himself, he is truth. Now he says that because he has just given a description of all of these pagan gods that now the Hebrews are making and worshiping. Go back over to verse 3, and let me just kind of walk down some of this with you. He comes in verse 3, and he says, For the customs of the peoples are a delusion. Let me tell you something. They were a delusion for them, and our gods are a delusion for us today. Now, we like to think ourselves too sophisticated not to bow down to things, but I want to tell you something. Our hearts worship all kind of gods today, and we are deluded by them he says, "For the customs of the people are delusion." You know what the word delusion is, and he uses it again in verse eight. So he uses the word twice. It means the word. It's the. It's the word breath. It means a vapor. It, it's this idea that that uh, the delusion is just so thin you can't even grab a hold of it you don't see you see your breath on some mornings in the winter time and you look at that vapor and by the time you get a look at it it's dissipated and gone that's the word it's the same word that Solomon's using in Ecclesiastes when he says vanity vanity all is vanity there's nothing there it's just a breath it's a delusion to think that it's anything because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They would go out in the woods. They would cut down a tree. They would cut the tree in sections. They would take a section of it and kick it over to the side and say, we'll carve that one up and that'll be a god. That's how stupid this stuff is. Yet we don't think we do that. Number one, they're untrustworthy. Look at what he says. They decorate it with silver and with gold. The whole thing is just... (laughs) It's just a deception. They take a piece of wood, they carve it up, and then they overlay it with some silver and some gold, and they make you think, look at how impressive that is. It glistens, it glows, it it sparkles, it twinkles. Look at this piece of gold that is here. Well, it wasn't gold, it's wood at the heart. It's not silver. It's wood at the heart. It's just an overlay of gold. It's just an overlay of something that will sparkle in the sun. In other words, the whole thing is just simply untrustworthy. It's deceptive. It's lying to you the whole time you're looking at it. Number two, it's unstable. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. That is, they have to nail down their God to keep him stable. Now, the whole concept of, a, of, of stability is that my God is to keep me stable. If I've got to go and constantly be stabilizing my God, it is no God. I don't need anything else I've got to keep up with. So their gods were unstable. Unstable. They would have to prop them up. They would have to put them up. In verse five, look at what it says. They're like a scarecrow. This is satire. He says, their gods are like a scarecrow in a, in a cucumber field. You remember, you say, well, now, what does all that mean? You remember the scarecrow in Wizard of Oz? Uh, what did the, you know, here's what it's saying. What, did the, what, did, what was it that the scarecrow wanted? Brain. Brain. You remember his song? Oh, my head, I'd be a scratching. With my thoughts that were a hatching, if I only had a brain. Y'all can uh, applaud later. Um, um, That's what he, had no brain. He says they have no brain. They cannot think. They have no thoughts. They can pass no judgments. He comes and he says, listen, they are unable to speak. Do you see that at the end of verse five? And they cannot speak. And then he comes and he says this, they are immobile. They must be carried because they cannot walk. And then he comes and he says, ultimately they're unhelpful. They can't do anything for you. Don't fear them for they can do no harm nor can they do any good. Jeremiah comes and he says, it's just ridiculous to think that you're worshiping these things that you've made with your own hands that you have to stabilize, that you have to carry, that you have to move, pick up, and carry, and they can't do one cotton-picking thing for you. They can't harm you. They can't help you. But he comes back and he says at this, listen, let me tell you that our God is the God who is true. They can't speak. They can't talk to you. If you look down at the end of verse 14, it says there is no breath in them. They have no vocal cords. They have no lungs. They can't even form an utterance. But if there's one thing about our God, it's that our God speaks. He not only speaks, but he has given us his word. Now, let me just, having made that point, I want to take you off now and talk about that because that is the one area where higher education attacks the Word of God. This is where Bart Ehrman and all of those who follow him and believe like him take young people and convince them that the Word of God is absolutely useless. In his book, Uh, Misquoting Jesus, by the way, which became a bestseller, uh, and it only became a bestseller. It had been out for some time, and then Stephen Colbert had him on his show and uh, introduced the book, and talked to him about the book, and the next day it became number one on the bestsellers list, New York Times bestsellers list, misquoting Jesus, how Jesus became God. I want, you to, I want you to listen to what he said. Not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have the copies of the copies of the originals, or copies of the copies of the copies of the original? He's talking about manuscripts. We do not have the original manuscripts. And I'm going to talk about that. Now, listen, this is where you're going to have to put your, you know, my little kindergarten teacher used to tell us, put your thinking cap on. And so you've got to think with me for just a little bit. It will do you really good to do this. You need to go through this exercise. They're talking about the manuscripts. Let me show you what a manuscript looks like. Um, there is the Chester Beatty Papyri right there. If you ever go to Dublin, uh, in Dublin, Ireland, there is the Chester Beatty Papyri Museum. You can go in there. You can go over to the university and see the Book of Kales uh, in, uh, Dublin Univer- at the uh, university there in Dublin. This, I believe, is the Gospel of Mark. I- I've had the opportunity on several different occasions to go there. And uh, just to get down, I get off in a wing of that uh, Uh, museum and I will get down and will attempt to read some of the Greek. Uh, This is beautiful and I'll tell you why. This is just incredible here. If you can see the richness of the color, the ornateness, uh, the, the, uh, the incredible drawing and painting here, they did that. Understand in that day and time, most people would never see a book. Can you imagine living your life and never seeing a book? Uh, can you imagine living your life and never seeing television? They had no entertainment, no TV, no magazines, no books, no anything like that. And so these, uh, uh, these uh, amanuenses or these uh, scholars would paint like this around to draw people, when they would see a Bible, to draw them into the Bible, and if they could read the Greek text, to draw them in so that they would read it and memorize it. There was a reason why they did it, and it was for that purpose right there to attract people, to show that this is unlike any other piece of literature ever written. Now, let me show you what a uh, little fraction of a piece uh, of manuscript. There you have, I can see this, I can see Pros uh, Galatas right there. That is. Paul's letter to the Galatians right there. And so it begins right there, his letter to the Galatians. Uh, By the way, you have no periods, you have no commas, you have no end of the sentence. This this is difficult to read and decipher because there's no end end to it. Uh, And Paul will write that way. Paul will write a sentence that will stretch on as long as a full paragraph or more. Anyway, um, that is what you call just a fraction, and they will take those. There are thousands of these, and uh, we have just thousands of manuscripts like that. Now, ho- go back to the Chester, Beatty, Papaya, or just either one. doesn't matter. Let me tell you, they also will talk to you about variants. They'll say, you can't believe the Word of God because there are so many variants. What is a Variant. Now, if you only had one single copy of the Greek New Testament, you would have no issue with a variant. But as soon as you've got a second copy, you're going to find a variant somewhere. That is, at some place, something is going to be a little different. Now, this is where people like Bart Ehrman... A lot of others in higher academics will tell you, you can't trust it. There are all these variants. Well, there are a lot of variants because there are a lot of copies. And uh, the variants, however, let me show you what they're discussing when they talk about variants. Uh, Let's pretend that this is the Gospel of John. I think it's Mark. But uh, let's pretend it's the Gospel of John. And it may start out the Gospel of John and spell John, J-O-H-N. But then I come to this over here, and I've got another manuscript, and it spells John, J-O-H-N, N. -N. Does it make a difference? No. Some people spell it J-O-N. Some people spell it a lot of different ways. And so that's what they're speaking of is that a word may be misspelled. If I spell to you J-O-H-N or I write to you J-O-H-N or J-O-H-N-N and you you know exactly what I'm talking about, you still understand. There may be an inversion of two words. I love my wife's cooking. My wife's cooking I love. Has that changed anything? Has that changed the meaning? Has you understand that the bottom line of my relationship with my wife is that I love her cooking? You say, see, there's some of y'all that have a sense of humor. Um, uh, but you understand what I'm saying. That's, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about variants. And I wanna say this right here. There are a lot of variants, but they never change one Verse of Scripture. They never affect Scripture. They never affect doctrine. Uh, And they are constantly finding these more and more and more along the way. Do you know how many Greek manuscripts we have of the Greek New Testament? 2016. I'm giving you a 2016 number, so I'm going to tell you it is more than that by now. Uh, It is 5,859 manuscripts. Uh, That we have of the Greek New Testament. Now, you think that I'm talking about little fragments. This is a fragment right here of a manuscript. You think I'm talking about that. No, the average, listen to me, the average manuscript that we have is over 450 pages. We don't have just little fragments. Uh, uh, Bart Ehrman is going to want you to believe that, oh, that's what you're getting right there. Here's getting little tiny pieces. No, the average, and I would say we probably have around 6,000 by now, 2023 from 2016, is that uh, the average, over 50%, are around 450 pages. So we have great, great manuscripts. That's just Greek manuscripts. Do you know that the New Testament was also written in Latin? It was written, in fact, uh, when uh, the young lady, was it Chloe? Chloe, are you in here that went to uh, the classical school? Did you study Latin? Y'all had Latin there. That's why you went to a classical school. I started a school in in Jacksonville, and it's classical as well, and they take Latin. Latin, Latin, hard as it can be. First, it killed the Romans, now it's killing me. So, um, we have 10,000. I started to bring a Latin manuscript in here and let you read it for us today, but I thought, no, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a break on it. We have 10,000 plus New Testament manuscripts in Latin. Then, in the languages Coptic, Syriac, Armenian, Arabic, Gothic, we have right at 10,000 copies of scripture, New Testament scripture and that. So we have somewhere around 26,000 manuscripts and they are still being found. If you, according to Daniel Wallace, I had the great privilege of preaching with Dr. Wallace on one occasion in New York. Uh, Dr. Wallace is head of the textual criticism uh, department at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. He also has uh, founded... uh, a a small um, ministry that they deal, they record and put all of these things together. He's a brilliant man. Uh, My son-in-law who had him, took him. uh, He he said he took him for Greek um, at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, Dr. Wallace years ago, and he he is one of the great Greek scholars today. He had a stroke and when he woke up, he had forgotten all of his Greek. Restudied, taught himself all over again and uh, now does this whole uh, ministry on manuscripts, New Testament manuscripts. Um, He says that from the ancient world, if you took Herodotus, if you took Homer, if you took the Gallic Wars from Caesar, if you took all the writings of Josephus, if you took the writings of Pliny the Elder, you put all of them together, you would have a stack of about four feet tall, about as tall as this podium right here. You know how many manuscripts we have of the New Testament? He said if you stack them all up on top of each other, they would be taller than three and a half empire state buildings on top of each other. Did you get that, folks? Y'all show me some emotion. Did you get that? I want our students to understand that this is the best I tested to book from the ancient world they will ever come across. Now, I'm not through with it. I'm just getting started with you. I want you to know this stuff. Next week, test. If we moved all those 26,000 pieces of manuscripts away and did not have a one, we could still have the New Testament. You said, well, how is that? people call the early church fathers Cyprian, Tertullian. I have stood in the remains of their churches in North Africa, in Algeria, and in Tunisia. I've stood there in their churches, Cyprian, Tertullian, Chrysostom. All of these men were not known for their brevity They wrote sermons that were long. They wrote homilies that were long. They wrote devotionals that were long. They wrote apologetics. They wrote letters. And in all of their pieces of writing, uh, they have quoted the entire New Testament almost entirely. They have quoted the New Testament almost entirely in their writing. Huge, long sections that they would quote from each of the Gospels, from Acts, from all of the epistles, Uh, from uh, the book of Revelation. So if we did not have a single manuscript, we would have the New Testament from the writings of the early church fathers. These guys go back about 150 years from John, by the way, about 150 years from John, and we have a million copies of the writings of the early church fathers, a million copies of that. That is documented. You get into a classroom or you get into a discussion with somebody at lunch somewhere on a job about the veracity, uh, the reliability, the truthfulness of the Word of God, it is a slam dunk, let me tell you. Now, I'm not through yet. I want you to understand that our manuscripts go back to within 150 years of the life of the Apostle John. That is, the earliest writings we have of the New Testament go back to about 150 years after the death of John. Now listen, Pliny the Elder was a scholar. If you do any New Testament studies, you're going to come across Pliny the Elder. He was a scholar. He was a Roman. He was an author. We have 200 copies of his writings. They go back to within 700 years. We go back to within 150 These go back to 700. Do you see what I'm saying? Only seven, the earliest extant writings we have are 700 years after he wrote it. Uh, Plutarch, the historian, the biographer, the philosopher, he wrote the Parallel Lives. There are four of his biographies left out of all of his biographies and some 22 other pieces of writing that's left. So you've got about 26 pieces of writing of his, and they go back, listen, 800 years after he wrote them. You can only get his writings up as close to him as 800 years. Josephus, you've read Josephus. I have Josephus's work the histories of the Jewish wars, uh, read him, um, go back, refer to him, check on things. It's how we know a, a number of things about the uh, New Testament period. Uh, Josephus, who was a Jew who led the rebellion against the Romans, and the Romans caught him, and he talked his way out of uh, being put to death, and he became the, for the, the historian for the Romans that wrote about the Jewish wars. Interesting guy. You know how many copies we have of Josephus? I'll say thousands, 26. 26. And the earliest go back to 800 years after he wrote. 800 years. Now, I'm going to give you one. Of, here, here's this. The Gallic Wars with Caesar. You know how many copies we've got? 10. 900 years after they were written, we have the first copy of it. 900 years. There are two fragments of John. I want to blow your mind. If y'all, listen. I'm t- Listen. Two fragments of John of the gospel of John, I believe it's the gospel of John, two fragments that have been uncovered. I read this this morning. I got back on and I was looking for some stuff and I found this this morning, two fragments from from John that date back to 50 years after he wrote it. Jiminy Cricket. I am telling you, you don't have to cat out of anybody. You can get in a classroom anywhere and you can hold your own with the authentic authentic word of God by what we have in manuscripts. And listen, we are more and more and more sure that what we have is exactly what was written. You know why? God's kept his hand on it. That's the bottom line of the whole thing. Okay, did I make that point to y'all? Have you gotten that? Let me tell you. You you don't have to back up. Anybody tells you this is not credible, they've not done the work, even if they have a PhD. Let me give you the second thing, Uh, and I have a minute and three seconds to do it. (laughs) Second thing is this. Uh, The second thing is you can trust the power of God over your life. You can trust the word of God in your life. You can trust the power of God over your life. He comes, by the way, Verse 11, are you there? You're looking at Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 11. This is the only verse in the entirety of the book of Jeremiah that is written in Aramaic. You say, well, well, why is that? I don't know other than uh, I think it is there to grab your attention. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish. Now, that doesn't mean they're just going to die. It means there's going to be destruction. These gods that they are worshiping are going to be destroyed from the earth and from under the heavens. The Word of God says all these gods that they were worshiped, you know, the gods that they worship could be undone just by a couple of termites. What can undo your God? He says they're going to be destroyed. And look at this. Now, this is where he turns, and it's almost always where the word of God. You can find this all through the word of God. The word of God, when it wants to show the power of God, almost always goes back and speaks of creation. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding, he has stretched out the heavens. You know, you just begin to think about that. You've got the moon that orbits the earth and the earth that orbits the sun. And uh, this sun moves uh, as our solar system moves and uh, it moves around our galaxy and the galaxy is now moving around the universe and it is moving at a speed of 450,000 miles a second. The galaxy in this universe, that's power. That's unbelievable power. You want to see some of this power? You go back to Genesis chapter 1. Now, here's something fascinating that I've just dined to show you, and I looked at that this week. Then God said, verse 3, Genesis chapter 1, then God said, Let there be light. Do you read that? Let there be light, and there was light. But now, do you notice this? You get down to verse 16, and it says, on the fourth day, God made the two great lights. Now, wait a minute. What's going on? I thought he did that on the very first, when he said, let there be light, and there was light. And You come down to verse 16, and he made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the sun, and the lesser light to govern the night, the moon, and he made the stars also. Well, no, there's an error there. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, God is light. Where did that light come from when he said, let there be light? He just uncovered the illumination of the Almighty, and it gave light. just sit there. You know, let me tell you something. That's why you read in Revelation chapter 21, there'll be no need for the sun, no need for the moon. Why? Because the lamp is the lamb and the light is God. I'm going to get, I'm going to get a little bit up in here in a minute. Okay. Listen, I've got to get back to this. Y'all don't listen near fast as you should. All of that was not really what the whole manuscript was not what got uh, Bart Ehrman off uh, of the Word of God. It contributed to it, but the whole issue became, does God have enough power over life? And he said no. And he said no because he could not resolve suffering in this world. It's one of the biggest issues for people And so he wrote a book, How the Bible Fails to Answer Our Most Important Question, Why We Suffer. Well, the fact of the matter is, the Bible does answer the question. It just didn't satisfy Bart. This week, we lost a great uh, mind, apologist, pastor, thinker, preacher, in Tim Keller. Tim was dying of cancer. He'd had it for several years, and um, on the day that he died, a young preacher boy in in another state sent me this video clip, and I want you to listen Tim Keller answer 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 the question of suffering.
0: Right, there's a philosophical answer, and there's a personal answer. The philosophical answer, which may not be the best for someone who's really in pain, the philosophical answer is, if you have a God big and powerful enough to be mad at for not stopping suffering, then you also have a God big and powerful enough to have some reasons, good reasons, why he hasn't stopped it that you can't think of. So, in other words, if, if to say, because I can't think of any reason why God hasn't just stopped all this suffering, I can't think of any good reason, there can't be one. That doesn't make sense. If you have a God big enough to be mad at, you've got a God big enough to be wiser than you. So that's, that actually philosophically works. If you actually have somebody trying to argue there can't be a God because of evil and suffering, Philosophically, that works, but it's, it's cold comfort to a person who's actually in pain. And the personal answer is, I don't know why. How do I, put it? I don't know the reason. I, don't, I do not know what the reason for your suffering is, but I do know what it isn't. It's not that God doesn't love you, because Christianity, uniquely among all the religions of the world, says that God actually came to earth and got involved in our suffering in order to someday end it without ending us, to be able to forgive us for our sins. No other religion says that God actually got involved in our suffering. So even though I don't know why he hasn't stopped it, I don't know what the reason is. I do know the reason isn't that he doesn't love us. And over the years as a pastor and as a sufferer, that has been the thing that's helped my heart. is that Okay, Jesus suffered. He understands. I don't have a God who's remote. Uh, he must have a good reason why he hasn't stopped it yet because it can't be that he doesn't love me because of what he did on the cross.
1: Now, here's a man dying. That's an interview not long ago. He's dying with cancer, a lot of pain um, that he suffered through. He suffered. He doesn't question God about it. He just understands that if God is big enough to be mad at, then God is big enough that he has reasons that we will never understand while we go through some of the struggles and the sufferings that we go through, but we are told in his word we do not go through them alone. That's the goodness of God. That's the power of God in in life. The power of God in life is not that he stops your suffering the power is is that he's able to take it and in some way he will make eternity greater because you suffered do you remember sam ganci in lord of the rings when he thought gandalf was dead Gandalf was dead. He was brokenhearted. He didn't know what he was going to do. And then he sees Gandalf. Gandalf comes up, and in that, Gandalf, uh, he looks at Gandalf, and he, and he says to him, I thought you were dead. But then again, I thought I was dead. <laughs> and he said, is everything, listen to this, is everything sad going to come untrue? Yes. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything one day that is sad and hurtful, everything that has harmed us and broken our hearts will come untrue in the presence of Jesus Christ when he will take it all and he will make it right and he will make that hurt cause our eternity to be even greater because we had hurt down here. Yes. That is the glory of our God. That is the marvel of our God. Can his power cover my life? Absolutely. Absolutely. Regardless of what you are going through, absolutely his power will take that and one day it'll all be made right. I've talked about Bart Ehrman in this sermon You want to pray for him. Let me talk about one more academician. Her name is Molly Worthen. Molly Worthen grew up in Glen Ellen right out of Chicago. I preached two revivals in Glen Ellen um, when I was in seminary about the time she was born there. Brilliant woman. She went to Yale and finished her bachelor's and then she got her Ph.D. at Yale in um, American Christianity, American religion. And in, uh, she teaches at the University of North Carolina. Uh, she is an associate of Bart Ehrman, uh, atheist, agnostic uh, as well. She taught uh, Christianity, global Christianity from the Reformation on. It's amazing to me, all these atheists that teach this stuff. Anyway, they teach that teaches uh, intellectualism, intellectualism in, in America from 1945 on, which is very little. So that's a short class, intellectualism in, And um, teaches, um, you know, uh, American religion uh, in the West uh, from 1945 on as well, I believe. So brilliant woman, uh, 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 an associate, works under the head of the department. Bart Ehrman is the department head there at UNC, Molly Worthen in the last few months has given her life to Jesus Christ. It's just come out in publication that she came to the Lord. Let me tell you something. You college students, you high school students, middle school, and all of the rest of you, we have the most credible belief system in the world. We have a God that you can trust his word and you can trust his power. Let's stand and pray about it. Thank you for listening. I went so long today and actually my notes are shorter uh, than usual. So that doesn't help. Um, I hope, I hope somehow that you will walk out of here even more confident in the word of God and in God himself for having been here today. If you're not written this down, I know at some point in time, God's going to call some of this back to your mind. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week. But somewhere in a conversation, when someone begins to make light of the word of God or the power of God, you should be able to give a hope, to give a defense for the hope uh, that is in you. Father, you've made yourself known to man and we can only say with David, what is man that you're mindful of him. We would know nothing of you had you not revealed yourself in time and in history to other men. And then beyond that, Father, to send your only begotten Son to live in a world of woe, to suffer like no one else could suffer so that he might identify with our hurts, our loss, our suffering, you are not only a gracious God, you are a merciful God. If your grace is greater than all of our sin, your mercy is greater than all of our suffering. So Lord, today, I pray for those that have never put their faith and trust in you, that today would be that day. For others to come and join this church, for those to say we want to be a part of where the Word of God is actually believed and taught and held on to. I pray that you bring them. For young people that you're calling to ministry, I pray, Father, that they would be willing to step out and to nail down that call in their lives. For whatever you want to do in our lives, in this church, I pray that you do it, and I pray it in Jesus' name. You come as God speaks.
0: Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.